I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today's conversation is with Tatende Muzipatiki, the founder and CEO of the Voter Formation Project, an organization focused on mobilizing voters in underrepresented communities using technology and creative digital strategies. Muzipatiki and I discuss how Voter Formation Project has had to be inventive in their use of social media platforms, given that some platforms no longer support content that they view as political advertising. We also talk about how they mobilized voters during the 2020 election cycle and during the Senate runoff races in Georgia. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Tatende Musubatiki. Tatende Musubatiki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So, before we jump into talking about Voter Formation Project, I wanted to talk about one of your more recent projects, right? In an organization or project that you did with Acronym. And you were the senior advisor there. And you're responsible for, I think, nearly a quarter of a million new voters being engaged. Was that just in Georgia alone? Can you talk about that project? Sure. So while at Acronym, I ran a program called the Expand the Electorate. It was a 501c3 nonpartisan program designed to get Black and Latinas to vote across our target states. We were focused in running our programs across eight states. Those states were Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas and Wisconsin. And with that, we use digital ads and influencer programming and social media to try and register several hundred thousand people. And we were pretty successful, which is really exciting. We then decided to expand the program right after the election to run in the Georgia runoffs. We expanded the breadth of the program. So it included Black, Latina and AAPI people to mobilize them to register to vote and to vote, which was it it was a crazy time. I don't think any of us were anticipating um, having both of those runoffs, let alone have them be successful. Especially coming off one of um, truly the longest and most exhausting election cycles ever. But we're really, really proud of the work that we were able to do in in really registering, you know, I believe the final number is over 100,000, but I, I would need to go check. So you had to come off of the November election, the general election, and turn around and pivot to the, the Georgia election, which I think a lot of people you know, weren't prepared or weren't thinking about that election. So did you have to shift your strategy? How did you get into that mode to help flip those seats? Um, I would say part adrenaline <laughs> and just part excitement at the landscape. It's, I think, so looking back, um, it was very booing to see that people turned out. You know, We were able to increase participation among people who had not voted um, either in previous elections or ever. Uh, And so we were in a very different media landscape, which is also something that I think not a lot of people might be aware of. And so whereas in the general election, the major platforms like Facebook and Google, where we were running our advertisements, had decided that, you know, we could run ads. They had certain rules for periods of time, but we were allowed to run advertisements encouraging people to vote. Um, They changed that right after the election. Both companies did so, I think, to help protect the election results. Their, Their reasoning was that they wanted to make sure that there were was less of an ability for people to put out false information about the results of the election, uh, especially given what we saw was happening, especially on the GOP side, uh, with Trump trying to claim he won the election when he didn't, or at least we didn't know for that period, like that week long period, right? And so for Georgia, we didn't have two of our biggest platforms that we knew were especially effective at reaching our target audiences, and so we did have to shift our strategy dramatically to think about how can we reach as many people as possible on these platforms using organic 
organic reach, meaning influencers who have a lot of people who follow their content in order to be able to encourage people to vote. Um, For us, we were just doing work to increase the electorate. Uh, For this program, we did not have a goal of who we were electing, but rather to say, we just want people to turn out. That was our goal. And even then, we still were banned from running these advertisements, uh, which was pretty frustrating. And so we did have to shift a bit to using more awareness tactics, um, using more influencer tactics, coordinating closely with with groups who were working in the state to make sure that we were being as additive and helpful as possible with the knowledge that we had about digital advertising and about using influencers in different types of ways to reach people without necessarily putting money behind it. So it was, it was helpful that I, I have the background that I do having come from Facebook before this, uh, before working at Acronym and having been working in the digital space for almost a decade. Um, it, it made it a bit easier, I think. But at the same time, it was just a very different landscape. And and I think a much a much harder landscape, considering that you're trying to mobilize people who are tired. Uh, no one wants to continue seeing political ads <laughs> after seeing them for like three months straight. No, no, you're right. So I'm just curious. So what did you use? So if Facebook is gone, and I think Google shortly after that, what platforms do you possibly use to engage voters? There are so many. And that's that's the the cool thing that I, I think came out of it is it forced a lot of advertisers to be a bit more creative and not rely um, necessarily on what they think they know works. So we used a lot of digital audio, which was exciting. Um, we used a lot of influencer networks. So when you think of, especially if you do a lot of online shopping, which I do, a lot of times you'll see people who you follow telling you, oh, I've been using this product or this is an ad or not an ad. And so we we thought about how is it that we could reach some of these influencers who maybe don't even talk about politics all the time, um, but may have you know an interest in making sure people in their community go out to vote. And so we, we ended up working with a bunch of folks to help find and identify um, influencers and then ask them if they'd be willing to put out messages about positive voting. In some cases, you do pay them and others you don't. But we just moved really quickly to identify people who either had access to these networks or who could be helpful for us or doing cold outreach ourselves to see uh, who we could reach, which was really cool. And then there's also just these networks of ads, you know, people who have websites who, like, if you think of large websites, like a Huffington Post, for example, uh, that's a closed network that certainly will take ads. And so thinking through how you can reach those individual uh, websites and pages where people might be spending their time is also um, a way that you can reach folks. So we, we, we did a little bit of it all. <laughs> Well, you know, what you've just described is not something that I've typically associated with political campaigns. Mm-hmm. They don't do very well with leveraging the knowledge and the technology that we have with all of these companies like Facebook and like Google, you know, and Amazon and all of the, the platforms that we have. There's such a concentration here in America and we just don't, I don't see political campaigns leveraging them. So I'm presuming that that is what you have brought to the table. Yes. Um, it's so fascinating to see how the era of digital has really just expanded, especially in the last cycle, I would say. And so I think we're starting to see campaigns uh, integrate more non-traditional tactics, but it's harder because campaigns aren't necessarily organizations where your legal team or your comms team wants to take risks. And so, you know, having had friends who came off the campaign and, you know, were talking about some of the things that they were able to implement, they were starting to use new platforms like Twitch, um, for example, to, to start reaching people with their messages, but not being on a campaign and being on what we call the soft side or rather like the organizational side, we have such 
this amazing ability to not necessarily be hamstrung by what a typical campaign can or can't do. I think the thing I loved once I came to Acronym and why I'm starting this organization and one of the reasons I left Facebook is because I was craving to see these campaigns that I had dreamt up in my head that didn't do the typical thing. I had been seeing the same type of ads and the same types of campaigns year over year over year that I had run years prior with very few organizations, if any, looking to say, how can I push the needle? How can I do something a little bit different? Like I will put something on OnlyFans if I have to at this point, right? Like I'm very (laughs) interested in exploring how is it that we can reach people who aren't politically engaged by using the places they're already spending their time. Like I don't need to be hoity-toity about it. Like if we can reach people on OnlyFans or Grindr or Instagram or (laughs) Facebook, it's all the same to me. Because then you get to possibly consider voting. And so that's what's really exciting about this space and where we are is there are so many different places to reach people who, frankly, are a bit removed from all of the traditional places where people think you should consume news or information about civic participation. There should be no limit, right? Because no matter who you are, if you are a citizen in this country, you deserve to vote and you deserve to learn about that you know, in any space. Okay, so if we're talking about Grindr and OnlyFans, what about some of these alternative social media networks that have cropped up because they're unhappy, you know, conservative networks, right? Where, you know, possibly there are some voters who you want to shift or, you know, get some information out to. Um, I don't know what they are. I don't keep up with the conservative social media networks, but they're out there and they're cropping up and they're growing. Um, is that on your radar? Not as much. I think a lot of those networks are kind of committed to, to misinformation. <laughs> that's the, the scary part. And I think that's where... Um, we differ is where I'm committed to letting people know about how you can participate in the system, especially people of color, because Voter Formation Project is focused on reaching people of color. Um, Unclear how many people of color are on those networks, to be honest. Um, But we're also committed to telling the truth about the system, especially given how complicated it is. And so for a lot of those networks, I think this is where the tech nerd in me comes out. They're going to have a lot of really fascinating issues about where the intersection of free speech is and safety and technology. And these are are issues that we're seeing come up with platforms, especially Facebook, for how do we use social media and what are the responsibilities that the companies themselves versus the individuals have and, and what expectations of privacy are there and to what extent is it acceptable for people to perpetuate continually false narratives. It's going to be really, really fascinating to see where the law and where the the public sentiment falls with that. Because I do think, you know, these these groups, if if people are planning instructions on them on the social media platforms that have cropped up, they're going to have legal issues. Yeah. And I think those platforms are pretty insular. You're right. There, you know, there aren't many people like around people probably. I don't know what the demographics are. I'm just going to assume that there there aren't. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's not a platform to consider. or These aren't, aren't platforms you want to consider. But I'm curious about, you know, all of the voter suppression bills, you know, that have come into play since the November election. Right. Because conservatives are working at this, you know, this neck breaking pace to pass them. And I think Georgia has been most notable, but there have been some other states, too. So 
how have you adjusted your strategy to kind of keep up with those voter suppression bills? Not much, which sounds like, oh, we might not have to do much. But the goal of of our organization and one of the things that we believe in strongly is that, one, we need to be doing longer term communication to these communities wherever they're spending their time to let them know that voting is important and it matters. And then secondarily, when we get closer to elections, to help people have the information they need to register and vote. And so... If anything, what this will cause us to do is probably need to spend more resources on like legal and um, creative to make sure that we are keeping pace and putting out accurate information about how people can vote and where they access their forms and at what times they can vote and how many different ways they can vote. But it doesn't actually change our strategy and premise of giving people information about how to do so, but then also trying to inspire people to want to do it. We want to motivate people to participate. It makes it a bit harder when, especially on the motivation front, when you have a whole group of people trying to basically denigrate high turnout, which is what this is. It's it's patently an un-American thing to see that we have the highest turnout ever for both parties and one party has decided that's bad. It, It just fundamentally doesn't resonate with, I think, anyone's understanding of what is American and what it means to be free to help elect the people who govern you. And so it doesn't necessarily change our mission in any way. It just makes it harder. And and frankly, it's just disappointing to see. I think that one thing we should all be agreed on, whether or not we believe in a, a large federal government or a small federal government, is that it should be easy for people to select who governs them, because that is the fundamental tenet of being an American. And it's not what we're seeing happening today across many states. Well, one of the things that I think may hinder, you know, I guess this goal with black and brown communities that a lot of black and brown people live in what we call, you know, these technology deserts, right? So how do you get around that? It's interesting you mentioned that because while this may be true, um, people of color over-index compared to their white counterparts on time spent online, and they over-index on video consumed online and on their mobile devices compared to their whiter counterparts. And so despite the fact that there may be this difference in connectivity speed um, or you know, perpetual access, there is actually evidence that these folks are spending more time online than other people may be. And so what it's important to think about is where are they spending their time and how are they spending their time? And that really differs based on age and demographic. And so while you might see older folks who are spending more time on Facebook to connect or message or on WhatsApp, for instance, to to message people where they're spending their time, young people use Facebook as a phone book. They use it as a utility and they do a lot of their video consumption and sharing on platforms like Snapchat and TikTok. So what we're thinking about is, Not necessarily if people are connected, because we know they are to a certain extent, but where they're spending their time, how can we be reaching people, which I think is the most important thing to to take into account when doing this work. Um, You know, I know you mentioned earlier, you know, getting involved on possibly the legal side. And I know that there are lots of organizations like the ACLU and other organizations that are that are, you know, suing. You know, to, to, you know, hopefully turn back some of these voter suppression efforts. Right. How reliant is your strategy on the success of those outcomes? Um, not as much. Our our goal is no matter what the outcome, to be able to inform and mobilize people to vote. We are so, <laughs> so excited that folks are, you know, pushing back. We are high key fans of Mark Elias and Democracy Docket to help keep track of all of the different places where laws are changing and there is litigation, especially um, in some of these states 
However, you know, at the end of the day, the elections are going to happen regardless of what the outcomes of the legal ramifications are. So our job is to stay on top of what the rules are and communicate them and, you know, certainly hope for (laughs) and support efforts to expand the electorate and to expand voting rights. But at the same time, I think we almost I don't want to say it's a pessimistic look, but it's a reality that we may not win all of these cases. And so we need to do the best that we can to make sure that we are arming people with the correct information, regardless of what the outcome is. What what states do you think are most worrying aside from Georgia? I mean, everybody's talking about Georgia, but there are other states too. I, I am consistently impressed with how much Texas does in terms of voter <laughs> suppression. When I first started digging into, you know, the specific states that we were working into, the way that they limit voting is incredible. Even more incredible, though, are the amazing people who fight within that state to make sure that there are just people making sure that they're pushing back on what's happening, both, you know, from the legal framework or people like Lena Hidalgo, but then also groups within Texas who are fighting those legal battles every day. It's it's really, really impressive. Um, So shout out to all the people on the ground working in Texas, because there are a lot of them. And I think they do a lot of unseen and unsung heroic work. There's also, you know, states where you see, you know, a little bit of give and take, if you will, but the give isn't as good as the take. So a state like Missouri, where you see, um, you know, they're expanding some methods of voting, but then constricting and creating more laws to limit voting. So it seems like, oh, well, we gave this one concession to expand this type of voting, but we're doing four things that make it much harder to vote in the long run are also concerning because it is concerning that any kind of constriction or expansion of voting is seen as partisan, when really what we should be thinking about is the totality of, are we making it easier for people to vote? in this country, because the elections are secure, they are safe. And so all of these laws are happening under the guise of this big lie that was perpetuated by a wannabe dictator. And so why are we responding to it? And it's because one party, I think, is scared of losing power. And so they are trying to limit the kinds of people who vote. And it's just, it's a real shame to see. You know, what's interesting about that is that their voter base, the constituents who actually need to vote as well, have not spoken out about the fact that, that you know, this this actually reduces their access to the ballot as well. You know, voting in itself is not a partisan issue, but Republicans have successfully made it into a partisan, a partisan issue. It's what you vote about. That's a partisan issue. But actually being or having access to the ballot is not. It's 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 fascinating. And, you know, there are also certain things that are agreed on on a bipartisan level that maybe not be so great. So I think that the Republicans have done a very good job of trying to convince people that you need an ID to go vote. Otherwise, the election isn't secure. And that's simply not true. There are plenty of jurisdictions. I live in one where I do not need to present my ID to vote. I live in Washington, D.C. But, you know, I think a majority of Americans do believe you should have an ID without recognizing that there are a lot of people in this country who do not have IDs and who are unbanked. And Just because you fall under those two conditions, if you're a citizen of this country, you should still get to choose your representation. Um, And so I think we have a lot of work to do as well to educate people about, you know, what is the reality of the safety of elections in our country? Newsflash, they're safe. And also, how is it that certain restrictions can, you know, really harm an entire population of people (laughs) from voting as something as simple as an ID that may make it seem like, oh, well, I have an ID. Well, yes, you know, you might have been privileged enough to have parents who kept your birth certificate and to be able to afford a car and need to drive. Um, But there are many people who don't fall in that bucket and, you know, may live in rural communities and 
you know, may have lost their birth certificates and truly just don't have anything that is unexpired to validate who they are. And it's important for us to recognize that that, too, is a form of voter suppression. Yes, yes. And, you know, speaking of that, do you see your organization or do you see yourself branching out into other areas of voting to modernize those areas? You know, like making registration easier. I mean, I think the pandemic has, you know, brought out the fact that we do need ways for people to, you know, modernize ways where people can actually vote and reach the ballot. Do you see yourself branching out there at all? Um, right now, I am so focused on getting this off the ground. I haven't, you know, given much thought to the, the lobbying aspect that you're talking about. It doesn't, at this immediate point in time, it doesn't seem a place where you know we are the best source to do that work. We're really focused on trying to run the programs, but then also helping community organizations who may be doing that work think about how best they can um, implement digital tactics to do that. So we, I think, are probably better off uplifting and supporting the amazing groups who are already doing that kind of work and helping them bolster their digital tactics as opposed to taking it on ourselves. You know, there's so many organizations that do tangential work to yours, right? Um, do you have any collaborations on the horizon, you know, allowing other similar organizations to leverage your platform, you know, to boost their own strategies? So the other way that we're helping to um, support community organizations, especially state level organizations with the same kind of mission that we have is to allow them to use our online platform for free. That way they're able to do more experimentation with digital tactics and then also uh, providing education for executives who may run these orgs who may not have experience with digital. Um, Many people who run organizations weren't necessarily you know, have digital backgrounds, many of them may be fundraisers or activists or community organizers. And so we want to make sure that we're able to help use the knowledge that we've acquired to help everyone do a little bit better. I think we're really invested in, in making sure that or helping different orgs be able to do their best work and be creative and come up with really novel ideas for how they can organize better uh, through giving information because we're not always going to be the group that has the best ideas, but we want to help facilitate people bring those ideas to life. So we're, we're really excited to take on that that aspect of the work as well. Well, it's a 10 day, Ms. Batiki. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for all of your work. I'll be watching out for what you do, I guess, in 2022 and 2024. And just thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. 